Well, we are in a series about the the church, and the last and two weeks ago, I started um, on the sacraments, and I planned on doing something on baptism and um, communion, and but it took a whole week just to talk about the sacraments and sort of where they came from. So last week we did communion since it was a communion Sunday, and this week we're talking about baptism. And because we're, these topics are a little uneven in terms of you can't just go to one particular text and spend your whole time there, um, I want us to just look at two different texts, Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, and then Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, Moses speaking, The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Peter is at the end of his very famous sermon right after Pentecost, the event of Pentecost. He's given this sermon And let's go back to verse 37, actually, chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, when they heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Take a moment here, just reflect on these verses before we think about this idea of baptism together. At the age of 35, which would be 15 years ago for me, Yes, I am 50. I know that is hard for you to believe. This is equally hard for me to say. But if at the age of 35 I had come to visit Christ Community Church, I would have gotten a donut on my way out and gotten the car and probably would have said some things like this. Wow, I really appreciate the priority of the Bible. It's encouraging to see people coming to the church and they're bringing their Bibles with them and they're encouraged to have their Bibles open as we go through the sermon. I would have said, uh, I like the mix of the old songs and the new songs. I would have liked the emphasis on missions. And then, of course, I would have spent a lot of time saying, wow, what an awesome pastor that that church had. What a stud they have there behind the pulpit. Um, so I would have said some things like that, but I would have uh, also left when I was 35, seeing this one sort of wart on the nose. Like I like sort of the face, but gosh, there's this one little thing that it's little, but it seems to still get in the way of every time I look at it. And this wart would have been in my mind when I was 35 infant baptism. I would have left saying something like this. Why would a church who takes the Bible so seriously still baptize babies? That's what I would have thought 15 years ago. Uh, I had my own children baptized as believers here at Christ Community Church when they were 8 and 10. 
So obviously something has changed in my thinking in that area. And so this morning as I tackle the sacrament of baptism, I wanted to to walk you through a few areas that changed in my thinking. And maybe that will just help you to process where you are in your position in that way. But before I walk through those that, those particular areas, I want to say, um, before I highlight those, that, it, that if, if you were to think through the issues of the Bible and how you analyze them and how sure you are of them, I think you could come up with some areas that if this was a scale, that if you put something on the scale, it would just be clear that it, it moves in this direction. It, is Jesus divine? Yes. Did Jesus die for uh, our sins? Yes. Did Jesus bodily resurrect from the grave? Yes. I mean, it just wouldn't take a lot of effort before you'd immediately say, yes, that's true, or perhaps in some cases, no, that's not true. Uh, then there are some areas in the Bible that when you come to, and they don't have to deal with salvation, but there are areas that you'd say, well, I mean, I'm not quite as sure as that, but it seems like it tips this way, and it doesn't seem very hard to come to a conclusion. And and like for me, one of those areas would, like in your church government, would you have elders and deacons or just do you have just deacons, like in some churches? And, of course, some churches think differently than I do. But it just seems to me, if you just read First Timothy, and he says there's elders and deacons, at least you can go right to a passage and say, well, this is where I come out on that. And so it seems to tip, not, you know, not all the way down, but it definitely tips in that direction. And, of course, I understand why people might have some different thoughts. But then you come to areas that I, that I call leaning areas, that you just lean in this direction, that you're sort of taking the, the overall volume of what you, what you read and how you read the Bible and when you take all that, you can't just drill it down and just point to one particular verse and say, well, this is obviously true. It's just something you lean towards. And I would say when I describe infant baptism that I was in one camp and now I'm leaning in the other. Because when I, when I look at sort of the totality of the Bible, uh, I can see how... The Bible talks about the uh, connection from the Old Testament into the New Testament and how that connects with baptizing infants. So it's a leaning issue. It may be one of those issues that you want to take a look at for yourself and see which way you lean. And then I would encourage you to just conclude by what you think the Bible is clearest about in this area because a lot of times you can come to a conclusion like this because this is just the way you grew up and so you haven't known anything else but regardless of which side you're on you want to take a side based on what you think the best reading of the bible is and so i think in these areas of leaning like this particular area there should be great charity great humility great patience should be uh, exercised so what did i see in the bible that caused me to be on one side and then to shift to the other. Number one, I'm going to mention three things. Number one, uh, the overall unity of the Bible. How, how you view the overall story of the Bible has a tremendous effect on how you would lean or not lean into infant baptism. When I grew up, I grew up in um, churches until middle school when I stopped going to church. But at least through middle school, I was pretty much going to church and going to Sunday school and I wouldn't say I had the best attention span. Uh, but I would say I went enough. And if you had asked me at some point when I was 10 or 12, 
and maybe even past that point, um, I, I came away thinking something like this. The God in the Old Testament was different than the God in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament was sort of the God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is the God of grace. Uh, the way God worked in the Old Testament was works, and the way God works in the New Testament is grace. And I, I can even remember getting a Bible that was a, a Bible, and then I opened it up. It's just the New Testament and Psalms. And maybe that was for financial reasons. I don't remember. But um, regardless of, of that, it sort of drove me to this conclusion that there's a, a wedge here, and there's a pretty big difference between the Old and the New Testament and I came to think that there was mostly disunity between the, the two. And so, because my view of the Bible uh, was disunified, when I went to the New Testament, which seemed to be the really important words, and especially those that were in red, uh, I just couldn't find infant baptism. And so, because I was just looking at the New Testament, I just couldn't find it clearly, so I just couldn't understand why you would even conclude that would be something that you would do. And so uh, the shift that began to take place, and I explained this in greater detail two weeks ago, is uh, a shift on how I saw the, the, the whole story of the Bible and how it was much more unified than disunified than I had first imagined. Um, when, when we see the Bible, I think the Bible is primarily telling one overarching story rather than two stories or three stories or five stories that some people might say and how they chop up the Bible. And I would say that there's really not a division between the Old Testament and the New Testament as much as there's a division between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and that is there was a covenant that God made with Adam, and we know that in theological terms as the covenant of works. So if, Adam, you would obey, then I would be the one who would protect you, the Lord is saying. But Adam didn't obey, and he got cast out of the garden, and Adam could no longer work himself back into a right relationship with God, so God had to establish a different covenant. It was called the covenant of grace. And the reason it was called the covenant of grace is because God was going to have to make his way to Adam rather than Adam obeying God. And so there's a, uh, there is a division, and it's a division right there in Genesis chapter 3 where you had the covenant of works. And now from Genesis chapter 3, especially verse 15, all the way to the end of, ti of time now, we have this one overarching story called the covenant of grace. And the way I sort of describe that is when you read through the Old Testament, you remember the, the illustration I had is you're sitting on the beach and it's dark, but the sun's just about ready to break the horizon. And, and as it gets to that time, little shreds of light begin to come over the horizon. It's not the actual sun itself, you can, but you can tell something big is coming over the horizon. And when you begin to read your Bible in Genesis chapter 3 all the way to Matthew chapter 1, what you see is more and more light coming on the horizon. And when Jesus comes over the horizon, it's here is the one that we've been waiting for. This is what everything's been pointing to. He's the, the accumulation of all these things that we've been reading about in the Old Testament. And so this helps me see that there's this one overarching plan of the way God saves people, and that is through grace. Which, by the way, helps answer this question. How are people saved in the Old Testament? 
probably either had that question or somebody's asked you that question. And people in the Old Testament are saved in the same way people in the New Testament are saved. And that is by grace through faith. Now, I happen to be living in the year 2000 and I'm looking back to this event. And if I had lived in the year 2000 BC, I would be looking forward to some event. And I wouldn't have the same amount of light if I lived in 2000 B.C., but I'm still looking and saying God's going to do something by grace. And I know that because in Genesis chapter 3, there's a seed of the woman. I know that because a lamb that was slain. I know that because a real king is coming. I know it all the way through the Old Testament. More and more light's coming on, and I'm looking forward to that person who's going to atone for my sin once and for all. So... I'm seeing that there's one overarching story in the Bible, and that helped me see as I moved towards infant baptism. Number number two, the second issue that helped. Even though I see an underlying unity in the Bible, there definitely are differences between the Old and the New Testament. So even though I see there's a covenant of works for a couple of chapters, and then from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of time, we're really in this covenant of grace there really, is, there really are some significant differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the sort of the academic vocabulary that you might be able to put into your head from now on are these two words, continuity versus discontinuity. So you want to whip that out on your friend this week and just say, you know, church, we were talking about, the, you know, the continuity, discontinuity thing in the Bible. And you can be very impressive with your friends And really, it's something that you use all the time, even if you don't use that vocabulary. And really, it's trying to answer the question, what continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament? And what discontinues from the Old Testament into the New Testament? And everybody uses a filter like that, even if you don't use the words. And this is a huge question. What continues, what discontinues is a huge question, and you're going to hear this being played out all the time, especially in the media, and sometimes in other places where people, I think, don't really understand there's the difference, the continuity or discontinuity question. And let me just give you one example. In 2006, then-Senator Barack Obama delivered a speech on faith called a call to renewal. And he made this statement. It's a very common statement made in many different circles. And he's asking this question, which passages of the Scripture should guide our public policy? Which passages of Scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests that eating shellfish is an abomination? How about Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith? Or should we just stick to the Sermon on the Mount? Now, regardless of his purpose for saying it in that particular way, and I'm not sure, but do you see the question that's there? It's it's what's, what's continuous and what's discontinuous. How would you say to somebody, oh, we don't live that way or we do live that way? What would you, how would you begin to navigate trying to unpack that particular statement? And you'll hear this in Hollywood. You'll hear this all the time, somebody bringing something up. And I would say two things as you hear these kinds of things. First, it's helpful to have a clear understanding of what the Old Testament actually says. And I'm not sure he got that quite right. But beyond that, I think it's 
helpful to understand the continuity versus discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. So last week, continuity and discontinuity, we saw the, the Lord's Supper. There's continuity and discontinuity in the Lord's Supper. So when you come up and you take of the Lord's Supper, now you still have the bread and the wine, which was on the table. So it's continuous in some way. But what's not on the table anymore? There's no more lamb. We don't come up and have lamb for the communion, do we? You don't get bread, wine, and a little piece of lamb. Why? Because this is he's the lamb. He's the last sacrifice. We don't need this lamb anymore. And we just use the bread and the wine to signify that's the last lamb. The body and the blood of Christ is what we come to now. So the Passover is discontinuous into the New Testament. We wouldn't as New Testament Christians celebrate the Passover because it's been changed. Some things are continuous. Some things are not continuous into now what we call the Lord's Supper. That's one place that we see this continuity versus discontinuity. Another place you see it is in regards to the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple represented the place that you come and meet with God. And Jesus says you can tear down this temple. Why? Remember when he says, hey, you know what, you can just tear this one down. No, this is, this is where we meet with God. We can't tear this down. And remember what he says? Oh, I'll raise it back up in three days, and it'll be the new place you meet with God. See, it won't be a physical place anymore. It's going to be me. So the, the, the physical temple is, is now discontinuous. We don't need the temple anymore because we have Christ who is the real temple. He's the place that you come if you want to meet with God. And so we're not trying to reconstruct a, a building, whether it's in Jerusalem or anywhere else, to, as a place to meet with God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So there's continuity and discontinuity. Another place of continuity and discontinuity is the faith of Abraham displayed in the Old Testament is the kind of faith that that we need to have in the New Testament. Let me read to you Galatians chapter 3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. His belief, his faith in God was credited to him as a right relationship with God. Therefore, now all those who believe in Christ are children of Abraham. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And all of God's promises to Abraham belong to us as Christians. So if you remember, if a few of you were in vacation Bible school many years ago, and you sang the song, Father Abraham. Anybody remember Anybody remember that song? It's kind of a goofy song. I think you did a bunch of, uh, I won't try to reenact it up here. Uh, I think it's like the Christian hokey pokey. That's the figure. That's how I figured it out. Like, how can we get the hokey pokey into the Bible somehow? So we do father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham. And then what does it say? And I am one of them. Mm, how is that possible? And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right? You know, okay. But see, whatever you're saying there, if you're singing that, what you're saying is there's some kind of continuity from Abraham to me. If you're singing that song, what you're saying is, in a theological sense, there's continuity between Abraham and me. And the continuity is Abraham's faith. 
His faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. And that's the same thing that we have. We have faith in Christ. And because we have faith in Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ. So we can be sons or daughters of Abraham. So this question of continuity or discontinuity comes out. It's the question that how you arrive at your answers about tithing. Or keeping the Sabbath. Or observing the law. Any of those questions, how you come to an answer on those questions, is a continuity versus discontinuity kind of question. Now, the one place of continuity which uh, played a role in my leaning towards infant baptism, this is getting to this point here, is the importance and influence of family connections throughout the entire Bible. So this continuity, discontinuity question, the reason it helped me in my uh, transformation or my shift is that I saw that God was working in the Bible the same way all the way through the Bible in terms of your family connections or the importance of your family connections. And let me give you some, uh, some examples. When God saves people, he's always making a special covenant relationship with them, but he's not just making it between a particular person and himself. He's making it between uh, himself, a particular person, and their family. We know this from some examples. Genesis chapter 6 in Noah. God said to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and and your family. See, I, I see the righteousness of Noah And I'm asking him to enter into my presence. And when he does, he's going to draw in his family. Abraham in Genesis 17, God says, I will make an everlasting covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your descendants. In Deuteronomy 29, which is what we read, Moses says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and... And to our children. In David, when he was to be the king, God says this in Psalm 132, The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that will not, he will not revoke. One of your own descendants will be placed on your throne. See, there's this tremendous amount of momentum that gets built up from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Matthew. And one of the things that this momentum is, is that, that God's dealing with people and their families. And it keeps rolling one covenant after another. I see it in Adam. I see it in Noah. I see it in Abraham. I see it in Moses. I see it in David. I see it all over the place. And then the question is, when you get to the New Testament, does this momentum carry into the New Testament? Or is it immediate stop? And you would think if this was building three to 5,000 years of a momentum and God meant to say, hey, now from this point on, from Matthew chapter 1 on, I'm just dealing with individuals, no longer the family situation. You would anticipate, whoa, okay. Where where does that say it clearly? Because this is a huge amount of momentum and it's very difficult to stop this oncoming momentum. I remember being at a dock and I was going on a trip to the Bahamas with some high school students. And we were sort of getting on this boat. And we noticed this boat coming in to uh, slip next to us. A fairly large boat, kind of a party boat. And we were kind of sitting there thinking, he seems like he's going a little fast. And we heard him cut his engines. But he, 
he still had a lot of momentum. And there were several of us on the dock thinking, can we somehow put our hands out? But you know, when you've got a big boat full of people, we just were like, no, he's going to have a nice intersection with his dock right now. And so he just plowed into this bulkhead. And, and, and see, he needed reverse thrusters. You know, he had to say, no, I've got all this forward momentum. I can't just drift. I've got to have this reverse thrust so I can go backwards. It's very difficult to stop this momentum. And the question in my mind became, if this is the way God's dealing and this momentum's going one person after another, one covenant after another, and he comes to make a new covenant, then you would anticipate this unless he says, no, full stop on that way. Now we're just doing it with individuals. And so I'm looking for that in the New Testament, and I don't find that in the New Testament. In fact, I find the language that helps me think that God's still doing the same thing. Acts chapter 2, the verse that we we read, the the people are cut to the heart and they're asking, what should we do to be saved? And And Peter says, you must repent for the forgiveness of your sins. You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Everybody here understands that language. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is a promise for you. So everybody's going, yes, I get that. And then what does he say? And for your children. See, everybody there would have understood this momentum coming from the Old Testament into the New Testament. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's also a Gentile thing because we know in Acts chapter 16, Paul meets the Philippian jailer. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul looks at this uh, Roman guard. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and, and your family. See, he picks up on all this momentum and says, God's still dealing the same way from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And, of course, this rolls on into church history. There's a council in five or 254 at Carthage. And here's what they say. We ought not to hinder any person from baptism in the grace of God, especially infants. Year 400, Augustine. The custom of our mother church in baptizing infants must not be accounted as needless or believed to be other than the tradition of the apostles. So we see this rolling into church history. And then the question became, well, when did it just become believers baptism only? Everybody believes that somebody doesn't know Christ and they meet Christ, they should get baptized. But when was it just believers baptism only? That started in 1520. So it's possible that God meant to stop it, to bring it to a full stop in Acts. But somehow it just didn't get relayed until 1520. And finally it came to sort of like this end in 1520. And, and, and that's possible. It just, just doesn't seem probable to me. So I lean back to God's always dealing with himself, his people, and their families in some way. Number three. So there's a unity of the Bible. One of the unities we see, that one of the continuities is the Old Testament and the New Testament is how God deals with families. And number three, we read it in what is a sacrament. You see it in Romans chapter four. It's a sign and a seal. A sacrament, whether it's baptism or communion, is communicated as a sign or a seal. And so here was my question that I always had. 
Well, I mean, how can someone like an infant receive the sign like baptism prior to expressing their faith? That was really kind of the nut of my question. If you're receiving this sign, how is it possible you could receive this sign prior to expressing your faith? That I just couldn't seem to get past that question. And I, then I had to realize, well, gosh, it's been happening for 1,500 years before the New Testament. People have been getting the sign before their faith. What's the sign? Circumcision. And eight-day-year-old boys have been circumcised for 1,500 years, and they've been getting this sign prior to their faith. So it's at least possible now for me to say, well, it's been happening for 1,500 years. It's at least possible to get the sign before you have faith. That's the first thing I had to see. And the second thing I had to realize is the way I've viewed the sign of baptism in that it was pointing in the wrong direction. Signs point to something. You go out here and it says take a left and take a left. It's, it's, you know, 200 miles to this destination. You get on this road. Take this exit ramp. Whenever you see a sign, it's pointing you in a particular direction. And whenever you see a baptism or whenever you see communion, it's pointing to someone or something. And in my mind, that sign pointed in baptism towards the person. What does the sign of baptism point to? What does the sign of circumcision point to? My answer for a long time was my faith. When somebody gets baptized, it's a sign of their faith. That's how I would have answered the question. Which is why when I grew up in Baptist circles and we had baptisms on Sunday evenings, there was always a mix of baptisms and rebaptisms. Why was there rebaptisms? I mean, was it the first one just didn't take? Guy didn't get all the way under. I mean, what was the what happened there? And I would say, see, the sign was pointing to the person's faith, and what they were saying, not in these words, but what they were saying was, see, the first one he didn't really have faith, but now that he's gotten older, he really has faith, so he needs to get rebaptized. Do you see what the sign is pointing to? The sign is pointing to your faith and your faithfulness. And I would say that's not what signs typically point to in the Bible. Most, if not all, signs point to to God, not to you. See, that was a big change in my thinking. And that what it really is pointing to is the righteousness that's available to you by faith, not your faith. That's what communion does. When you come in, it's not pointing primarily to you. It's pointing primarily to Jesus. When you see a baptism, it's not pointing primarily to the faith of the person. It's pointing to the righteousness of God that is available to this person by faith. And so that was a big change in how I saw saw the sign. Instead of the sign pointing to the human side, the sign really is pointing to the divine side. And then finally, I think of it as a seal or the idea of a seal. You remember the signet ring. You have a letter. Somebody writes out a letter that's in a prominent position, a king. He's going to make all these promises. And then he seals the letter. And he takes his ring. He presses some wax on it. And he says, see, this is my initials, Paul Morgan Phillips, PMP. 
And he's promising to do these things. And so you take it to my friend and says, if you, if you agree, you break the seal and all the promises that Paul agreed to are going to be yes and amen. That's the idea. And so when we would baptize an infant, what we're saying is that they're receiving a sign, a sign that if they express faith, all the righteousness of God is theirs. The seal will be broken and they will be saved. It's pointing in a direction that all the promises can be true for this person if when they grow up they express, I do have faith in God. The baptism itself isn't saving someone, whether you're a believer Baptist or an infant Baptist. This isn't saving you. It's a sign of how you get saved, and that's the righteousness of Christ. Now, when I put this sermon together, I wouldn't say I got very excited about it. This is not my sort of, wow, I came out of my office going, oh, can't wait till Sunday. It's going to be one of those places where you just feel like the Holy Spirit's just on you. You're like, can't wait to deliver. But I think it's helpful because it's what we do. And you need to understand it. Even if you wouldn't agree with it, I think you need to understand it. And sort of when I get to the end of a sermon like this, I think, now, God, I'm not questioning you. But why didn't you just put one verse in the Bible that could have cleared this? I mean, wouldn't you wanted that? I mean, it's not like you need a whole book. You could have just had one verse in Acts somewhere. Please do not baptize infants. And then just end of discussion. I mean, would have that been too difficult? That's, that's what I'm... I'm sorry that you, now you know that's how I think. But I'm just thinking this way. And so why doesn't God do that? I don't know. I don't know why he doesn't. But it's at least possible that on these issues of leaning, he may be as interested in how you deal with one another as in how you get that particular issue right. Because if you take an issue like that and use it as a weapon, he might be more concerned about whether you, not whether you got it right or wrong, but how you used it in terms of serving your brother or sister. And so I think it's possible, it should be possible, it is possible that if I lean in this direction and you lean in this direction, I think we can still hold hands and make it down the aisle towards Christ. Don't think it has to be something that separates us. Could be, and then you might want to move to a different church, I understand that, but I don't think it has to be one of those separating issues uh, although it's something that in the end you have to do, you have to decide on. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.